Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast via your favorite podcatcher. And so, yeah, you can also visit me at evidencebasedradio.com. Geez, I've been away for a couple of weeks and I'm completely and utterly rusty. <laughs> Sorry about that. So uh, first off, I do want to wish everyone a uh, happy new year, uh, even though it doesn't seem to be shaping up to be all that amazing yet. Um, let's 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 hope at least that uh, some good things will come out of it. And um, maybe we will actually have some things to celebrate moving forward. Um, right now, I am, I would say neutral. Uh, I wanted to say that I'm cautiously optimistic, but that would not be very factual. And since this is evidence-based radio, I think that it's important not to uh, be inaccurate. <laughs> but. Let us actually start tonight with a bit of pleasant news. Congress voted last month to rename the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope to the NSF Vera C. Rubin Observatory. Named after an astronomer who provided important evidence of the existence of dark matter, the NSF Vera C. Rubin Observatory seems destined to make hist science history with its extraordinary capabilities that will come to bear in the next few years, said Franz Cordova, director of the National Science Foundation in a press release. Now, Rubin was a pioneer in the study of dark matter. And uh, one of the reasons that this is so uh, incredible and very exciting is that um, she struggled a lot and was snubbed, for instance, by the Nobel Committee, uh, despite the fact that three men won the prize for very similar work in 2011. And uh, though these days I'm not really, uh, I don't have a lot of faith in the Nobel process anymore. I think that uh, it's been shown that there is a lot of problematic, um, there's lots, lots problematic about the Nobels in general. And uh, especially this year, there was some real, <laughs> it was a little bit like, really? Hmm. Uh, that's, that's how you're going to go with things. So I think that the Nobel will be hopefully becoming less of a prestige uh, award and maybe some other awards that are less problematic will rise up to take its place. Um, that could be a happy thought for uh, moving forward in time. Let's hope that that happens. Okay, well, I've talked about Ruben before, but here's a bit of a refresher. Um, we have to start a little bit before her. Uh, astronomer Fritz Zwicky coined the term dark matter back in 1933 as a possible explanation for why some galaxies weren't spreading apart despite not having enough mass to stay together. 
And so Rubin later found that galaxies seem to rotate just as fast at both the center and the edges of a system, which suggested that we were missing some form of mass that was present in the system but not accounted for in the mass of the stars that made up that system. Um, so basically, the idea is that uh, if you have something that has um, a variable, that if you have something that has a particular mass, the way that those masses work, there shouldn't be an ability for both the uh, center of a galaxy and the outside edges shouldn't be, they shouldn't be rotating at the same rate. Um, you know, if you have an object and you rotate it, the center is not rotating, um, or the center rotates faster than the outer edges because it has less, there's less um, distance for it to cover. And so basically what this meant was that there was a, um, there was sort of a circle of dark matter around these systems that was interacting with them and causing the exteriors of the systems to be able to rotate just as fast as the center because they had more mass. And so her, pub her work was published in 1980, but again, not without struggle. Uh, one of the most famous stories about Rubin was that uh, she was actually pregnant at the time uh, of when her thesis was going to be presented. So one of her obviously male advisors offered to present her work for her under his own name. <sighs> So it's great to see her getting some much-deserved recognition. Farrah Rubin's research transformed our understanding of galaxies by observationally showing that they grow up inside dark matter halos, said Amanda Bauer, Interim Deputy Director of Operations at the Rubin Observatory in a press release. Naming the observatory in her honor is a fitting tribute, an important statement about visibility and inclusivity in astronomy, and makes me proud to be involved in such an extraordinary project. Now, of course, women are still underrepresented, underrepresented in physics and astronomy, and most report that it's for the same reason that it has always been, sexual harassment, pay gaps, and general sexism from their male colleagues. And in fact, to put a point on this, while the observatory is named after Rubin, the telescope itself is being named after a billionaire Republican donor who made a sizable contribution to the early budget for the construction of the complex. So, yeah. Okay, let's let's move on to another unfortunately timely story. <laughs> For many years, researchers have wondered why the Viking colony on Greenland, which had been thriving for several hundred years, was suddenly abandoned. So Greenland was first populated in 985 when Eric the Red established a colony there. But by the 1400s, the island had been abandoned by the Vikings. Now, many different ideas have been floated for why this might have been. Uh, climate change has generally been the most... Uh, widespread version of what happened, uh, but also disease, over farming, or some combination of those. And so it's been one of those sort of cautionary tales. But it turns out that 
those might not be the reasons, though it's probably still a cautionary tale for sure. And so a new study published in Quaternary Science Reviews suggests that the real reason might have been a more modern sort of tale. A combination of the over-exploitation of local resources and the bottom falling out of the market for said resources. So just what were these resources? Walrus tusks um, or walrus ivory. First author of the study, James Barrett from the University of Cambridge, notes that while this is probably not the only thing that drove the colonists to abandon the Northern Island, it certainly contributed to their departure. Because, well, Greenland isn't actually particularly green. Um, if you've ever noticed, uh, Greenland, uh, th there's always the famous story about how, you know, Eric the Red was clearly a good salesman um, and, uh, you know, would have been, would have made a million, would have made a mint in uh, real estate if he was around today because Greenland is not particularly green. Um, Iceland is actually greener than Greenland. And so it is kind of hilarious that the two are uh, named wrong, basically. <laughs> and so walrus ivory was basically their most important trade good. Um, and so the Greenlanders basically relied on it as their money. And so it was basically the basis of their economy, because that's what they had that was of worth that they could exchange with people in Europe who had everything else that they needed. <laughs> um, and so walrus tusks were then used to make, I'm sorry, they were exchanged for goods such as iron and timber um, and other important things that you might need if you want to be able to build um, on an island and live there. So yeah, they were very important to the Greenlanders. And so the walrus tusks were then used to make a variety of goods, including jewelry, chess pieces, and other luxury items that circulated on the continent. And so we still have a lot of those chess pieces, for instance. Um, in a lot of museums, you'll see chess pieces cut uh, from walrus tusk ivory. Now, by the 11th century, the vast majority of ivory being traded across Europe was from walrus walruses captured in Greenland. And so, as with any in-demand resource, it was harvested at an unsustainable rate. <laughs> so, study co-author Bastian Starr from the University of Oslo notes that, so far, it has been unclear what the potential impacts of such trade may have been. We find evidence suggesting that smaller animals and more females were harvested during the later periods, and that these animals had been taken further and further away from the settlement in the south. Such observations reflect classic patterns of over-exploitation. And so, to add to the trouble, in the 13th century, African elephant tusks began to be sourced in Europe. Elephant ivory is bigger, and the smaller size of walrus ivory constrains what you can do with it, said Starr. Also, elephant ivory is consistent all the way through, whereas walrus tusks have a different color in the middle of the tusk. Uh, of course, that's hence why a lot of the walrus tusks were made into things like jewelry and chess pieces, because obviously you couldn't make them into larger things. Now, uh, somewhat 
intuitively, but also somewhat counterintuitively, uh, the archaeological data suggests that hunting actually increased during this period because, well, the Greenlanders still needed trade goods and the price of their commodity was steadily declining as this new African elephant ivory was coming onto the market that was, you know, frankly, a better quality product. And so the researchers used rostra, uh, a bit of bone that consists of both the snout and part of the skull, uh, to determine the patterns of exploitation. They were able to locate 67 rostra from sites across Europe from between the 11th and 15th centuries. The researchers then examined these pieces using DNA, isotopic, and morphological analyses. This allowed them to determine the animal's origin, lineage, size, and sex. In addition, they examined ivory artifacts made throughout the period and found in various parts of Europe. We have evidence that these rostras were used as packages, said Starr. Specific modifications made it easier to eventually snap off tusks when transported. Some of these rostra were kept throughout the ages, surviving in various collections as exotic items. Others were obtained from archaeological excavations. Most of them came from cities such as Trondheim, Bergen, and Dublin, which were known to have played a role in the ivory trade. Now, they found specific evidence for northern movement both in the rostrum and from archaeological evidence found in Greenland. Rivets from a Viking boat had previously been found in an Inuit community based far north on an islet of Ellesmere Island. This is very far north indeed in comparison to the North's settlements, which were in the southwestern, which were in southwestern Greenland, said Barrett. The Norse went that far for a reason. Now, for a few hundred years, the strategy worked, with a surplus of walrus ivory flooding into Europe. But by 1400, almost no new ivory uh, from walruses can be found in Europe, with elephant ivory having basically completely taken over the market. And so, due to the loss of their main form of trade, along with other factors such as the plague um, and those pesky farming issues, because again, Greenland is not actually very green, um, and so it's really hard to farm there. Uh, the Vikings were forced to abandon their colony on the island. And so the new research actually suggests that climate change wasn't a significant factor in the demise of the colony, uh, which, again, I had mentioned, had kind of been the common story told of this uh, journey. Now, it actually makes sense, as the area was not particularly uh, impacted by either the Middle Warm Period or the Little Ice Age that followed, which are the big sort of climactic changes that people point to for certain things having happened during this period. It turns out Greenland wasn't really affected by those, so it wasn't climate change. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that climate change can't lead to the collapse of a colony or nation, uh, but rather that it's important to look at multidimensional explanations for how these sorts of events play out. And of course, it has its own <laughs> moral, which is that it's a great reminder that over-harvesting and reliance on a single commodity are both 
bad long-term strategies for people. Um, and so, yes, also model coacher, perhaps. Um, um, so yes, like I said, another timely tale uh, for this evening. Okay, now let's move on and talk about one of our favorite subjects around here. Um, I hope you enjoy it as well, which is, of course, talking about how birds are awesome and uh, are smart. And so a new study suggests that African gray parrots are able to be altruistic. And so, uh, as you may know, African gray parrots are known for both their intelligence and for being highly social. Um, so if you remember, there was a particular African gray named Alex, um, and he basically was able to uh, do a whole host of things. Um, I think they said he basically had cognition um, equivalent to like a six-year-old, if I remember right. But I'm I'm pulling that from my memory, so don't don't take that with uh, take that with a grain of salt. Um, but he was able to count and talk and answer actual questions. And like, he was very, very amazing. Um, he unfortunately did pass away a couple years ago. Um, but yeah, I remember being rather blown away by what Alex could do. And so, um, you know, and they also, you know, even though he has passed, uh, African greys and a lot of parrots can live for, you know, upwards of or beyond 100 years. And so these are birds that, you know, I'm, I think that for something that lives that long, it tends to be probably useful to be pretty smart. Uh, and so it's not really surprising that they're able to do these sorts of things. But I suppose, you know, you can also point to, uh, say, Galapagos tortoises, which also are very long lived and aren't necessarily all that smart. But uh, so, you know, that's also something that it just feels right. But as soon as I said it, I thought, mm, no, I can think of other, I can think of counter uh, arguments to that. So anyways, let's, let's get back to uh, what we actually know. <laughs> and so um, this was a small study, as a lot of these are, but it's still very interesting. So there were eight parrots, six females and two males, and they were taught to exchange a metal washer for a treat. And so the researchers then set up an experimental apparatus where two birds were placed in clear boxes next to one another. One bird would have the metal washers, but no means to reach the treat, while the other would be able to receive treats, but would not have any washers. There was a, also a hole through which the two parrots could pass items. Now, seven of the eight birds willingly passed at least one washer to their counterpart, who was able to then exchange them for a treat. You notice I say a treat because they weren't getting more than one. So when they got the washer, they ate the treat. <laughs> uh, there doesn't seem to be, you know, they weren't giving the treat then to the bird that gave them the washer. Now, when the other box was empty, or when the other parrot was also cut off from the treats, uh, the birds passed fewer washers. This suggests that the birds were being altruistic, that they actually were helping another bird, even without the prospect of immediate reward. Now, further study will be needed to be 
will need to be done in order to see if the birds did this with an eye to future reciprocity. And so that's something that might be um, going on there. But even then, that's still uh, a cognitively sophisticated idea. Um, and so if that turns out to be true, I think that's actually even more interesting uh, that they're able to understand kind of the concept of, um, you know, doing something good now with the prospect of getting back something in the future. That's a really, uh, that's an important cognitive function. This shows that, yes, they have advanced social cognitive abilities. Desiree Brooks, the study's first author from the Max Planck Institute for Ornithology, noted, they're often called the feathered apes along with the corvids. It's interesting that they show similar behavior to primates, even though they're not related at all. And so uh, it's very, it's very cool. And the researchers actually went a step further. And so they tried the same experiment with blue headed macaws. Also, you know, smart birds, also uh, large parrots and also highly social birds. In this experiment, none of the birds passed a token to their counterpart. The researchers think it might have something to do with eating habits. And so African greys share a bowl while blue-headed macaws eat alone. So the next step for researchers is that they hope to test other parrots like cockatoos to further understand what might be causing the differences in behavior around altruism in these social birds. So that is very cool. And in other bird news, <laughs> researchers have recently observed puffins using tools. And so, uh, these seabirds, uh, Fratercula artica uh, were found to use sticks to scratch their chest and back. And so seabirds basically haven't generally been thought of as candidates for such complex behaviors. As such, seabirds' cognitive capacities may have been considerably underestimated, the authors write in the paper published recently in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The fact that to date, the only other birds seen scratching with a stick are parrots, prolific tool users, and problem solvers, supports this hypothesis. Now, the behavior, uh, the first one was a puffin using a stick to scratch its back. It was first observed by lead author Annette L. Fayette, who is an ecologist from the University of Oxford, on Skomer Island in Wales several years ago. And so she was observing the bird and she noted it down, but unfortunately she was observing the bird, I think through binoculars. And so she wasn't able to get an actual record of it. She didn't have a camera to hand or it just didn't work. And so, you know, unfortunately it was just a random observation that she couldn't give anybody the ability to evaluate. But in 2018, her team was finally able to capture a puffin from a different colony using a stick to scratch its chest. And so this time uh, they caught it on film and it was actually from Grimsey Island in Iceland. And so the authors note that 
Uh, for instance, there is, of course, the thought, well, they were just picking up a stick um, and using it incidentally because it's something that they would be gathering as a material. And so they note that it wouldn't have been incidental usage because they use softer materials for nesting. And so there would be no reason to pick up a stick like that. And in the Welsh, in the Welsh case, the bird was actually sitting in the sea far from its nest. And so the researchers hypothesize that the birds could have been trying to dislodge ticks. They note, for instance, that 2018, when the video was captured, was a particularly bad year for ticks. But of course, further research would be needed to substantiate this. Now, researchers in general have thought that since most tool use is associated with food acquisition, well, seabirds are generally able to use their swimming ability and, frankly, their sleekness and ability to dive and do things like that um, in order to get food very rather easily. And so they figured that tool use wouldn't be particularly prevalent. And also, frankly, seabirds are hard to study because they tend to spend a lot of time over open water and often nest on inaccessible islands and on cliff faces. And so it can be hard to observe those kinds of birds in those kinds of situations. Now, the fact that the puffins are from two distinct colonies suggests that the tool use might be genetic or that it arose spontaneously in two separate places, which would suggest a higher level of intelligence than once suspected. And we know, for instance, that puffins are actually in the same suborder as gulls, which have been observed using bait to fish. For the authors, the takeaway is to encourage more researchers to look for tool use. Many more species may also be using tools, but we simply haven't observed them yet, she noted. And so, yeah, I think that's very cool to think that uh, we might be missing some of these things rather than them not being out there. So keep a weather eye out when you see animals. <laughs> okay, um, we are going to take a break now for some PSAs and some show promos. And then we will come back and we will switch to human cognition for a minute. So do stay tuned. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Hey everyone, DJ Man of Nowhere here. Tune in to our show Arts Electronica, dedicated to downtempo, ambient, electronic and house music, but also techno and trance, with a hint of progressive and deep house, dubstep and experimental. 
We love all the music wizards here that bring to life their poetry throughout their sound spaces, soundscapes, and sound sculptures. Arte Electronica goes live on Saturdays at midnight to 2 a.m. Sunday morning. Check us out. Sassy! Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, Sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, Sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Fresh Sounds with your host, Ron Freshly, Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on WXOJLP, bringing you the music of Bud Powell, Wardell Gray, Art Blakey, Duke Ellington, Abby Lincoln, Tad Dameron, Yusef Latif, Bix Beiderbeck, Cassandra Wilson, Tom Harrell, Jane Ira Bloom, and thousands more. Aquí habla Marta Martinez, acupunturista de Stay in Touch. Está oyendo a Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, Northampton. You work hard for your wages, so you need to know most workers should receive at least the federal minimum wage and hopefully more. Also, most workers should receive overtime if they work more than 40 hours in seven days. These are the laws for everyone, documented or not. Have questions about your wages? Call the U.S. Department of Labor Wage in Our Division. It's free and confidential. Call 1-866-487-9243. That's 1-866-4-US-WAGE. We can help. A message from the U.S. Department of Labor. And we are back. All right. And like I said, we are going to be switching over to talk about human cognition for a moment. And so researchers have actually discovered a new electrical process, uh, potentially, in the human brain that some suggest might be a key to why humans seem to have some unique cognitive abilities. Now, of course, I spend a lot of time uh, (laughs) preaching the idea that humans are not so different from other animals, but obviously we do have some key differences. Um, And so the ways in which we have those key differences, that's still a little bit of a mystery to us. And so anything that kind of seems unique to humans is definitely worth Uh, doing a deep dive into and really trying to figure out if that may be some of the reason for our difference from the other animals. Now, of course, I also am always of the opinion that I'm not sure what the answer is to how much of a system or how much a piece of a system can know about the system as a whole. And so I'm not sure that there's a way for people with brains to understand brains completely. But I'm hoping the answer is yes, that we can. And so I think it's important to do this kind of research. All right, let's actually get into the research. 
Uh, so human neurons may be more powerful computational devices than previously thought. Study corresponding author Matthew Larkham at Humboldt University of Berlin wrote. Now, the research, which was published in the journal Science, looked at action potentials in the brains of humans and rodents. Now, in the brain, there is a system of connected cells, neurons, uh, which exchange information using chemical and electrical signals, which are called action potentials. Now, they are found, the, the researchers found that in the outer layers of the cortex of human brains, that there was a larger percentage of action potentials than they would have expected when compared to rodent models. Now, we've already known that humans have a uniquely thick cortex, especially in the second and third layers from the surface. And so these layers of the brain are full of neurons with lots of branches called dendrites. And so these are the connectors that pick up action potentials and move them along to other neurons. Comparing human brain tissue from patients with epilepsy and tumors, they collected they connected those tissue samples to a patch clamp, which allowed them to input an electrical current into the cells. They then used fluorescing microscopy and were able to observe an overabundance of action potentials. And so they also, and in addition, they found that a chemical meant to block dendrite activity wasn't actually fully effective. So they assumed that when it went out, that it would block the dendrite activity. Um, but apparently it does it uh, incompletely. And so the researchers looked at tissue from both patients with epilepsy and with tumors in order to ensure that it was not just the product of a particular disorder. Now, um, if you're wondering, <laughs> um, you may know, but you may not know that many people suffering from epilepsy do have portions of their brain removed um, in hopes of quieting their symptoms. And so uh, this is, you know, obviously much in the way that those with the brain tumor do. And so basically what it means is that those samples are readily available for research purposes without having to do anything invasive to someone who uh, doesn't actually have a reason for having part of their brain uh, removed, which is good. <laughs> uh, and so they found that the new action potential actually travels with the help of calcium ions only, rather than sodium and calcium ions like other uh, action potentials. And so this is a previously undiscovered action in mammalian cortex cells. They then modeled the calcium-mediated dendritic action potentials in a computer simulation and found that they could perform a computational function which scientists had previously believed could only be solved by a network of neurons. And so they think that this could help in artificial neural networks in uh, making programs that are actually able to simplify calculations. Now, of course, there are limitations to this kind of study. It is an in vitro as opposed to an in vivo study, which means that it was performed on cells in petri dishes rather than observing cells in a living human brain. Now, many, many a pharmaceutical has worked miracles in a test tube or petri dish and then failed miserably when applied to the actual body. And so 
again, that is also true of some experimental uh, setups wherein you can see something in a test tube, but when you actually look in the body, it doesn't work the same way as it did in the test tube or the P2 dish. But of course, this simply means that the next step <laughs> should be to explore the research with living subjects and also to check if other mammals might have this process, but that it is simply not visible in lab samples that are available to researchers. So it may be that mice have something similar to this, it just isn't in those tissues, because as we know, not, not all brains have the exact same setup. And so for instance, uh, you know, in mammals, you would think that they're, you know, more closely related, and that tends to be true. But um, if you think about mammals and birds, they have completely different brain setups in some ways. Um, but they end up doing largely the same functions. Now, dendrites have actually been a fairly unexplored region of the brain, despite that they make up 95% of the surface area of pyramidal cells in the cortex. So if it bears out this is that this is a unique human ability, it might, again, just be a step in the direction of understanding why humans are different from the rest of the life that shares our planet. Okay. Let us switch gears now and talk about a mystery that has been solved. On November 11th, 2018, a mysterious hum was recorded by seismologists around the world. It originated from a point off the coast of Mayotte, a tiny French island between Madagascar and Mozambique. Only a few people noticed it because it was not an earthquake, so it didn't catch people's eyes or ears. This is despite the fact that the seismic waves lasted for up to 20 minutes straight and eventually numbered more than 400 returns. Now, the only one who seemed to really take an interest initially was a Twitter user who goes by the handle Matarixapax and who posted photos of the waves from the USGS's real-time seismograph displays. This then set off the curiosity of researchers who began to suspect that the culprit had something to do with Mayette, which had recently had a swarm of earthquakes, but they couldn't really be sure. The French Geological Survey, BRGM, at the time suspected that a new center of volcanic activity was forming off the coast of the island. The location of the swarm is on the edge of the maps we have, said Nicholas Talifer, head of the Seismic and Volcanic Risk Unit at BRGM. There are a lot of things we don't know. And for the mystery wave, he said, it's something quite new in the signals of our stations. And so further research showed that while the signal consisted mostly of low frequency waves that are usually associated with the end of an earthquake, faint pings on the P and S waves, more typical of an earthquake could be heard. But even those were weird. 
They're too nice. They're too perfect to be nature. Helen Robinson, a PhD candidate in applied volcanology at the University of Glasgow, told National Geographic at the time. She did note, however, that there were no man-made structures or projects in the area that could be responsible. So clearly it had to be natural. Now, at the time, the best guess was resonance inside of a magma chamber triggered by a subsurface shift or chamber collapse. The waves could have been generated by the sloshing of molten rock or a pressure wave ricocheting around the magma body. Using these waves can help measure the size of the chamber. It's like a music instrument, said Jean-Paul Ampuero, a seismology at the University Côte d'Azur in France. The notes of a musical instrument, whether it's grave or very pitchy, depends on the size of the instrument. It was really a guessing game at the time as to whether it could be magma draining from a chamber or subsurface inflation, causing magma to well up and create a new chamber. Some collapse mechanisms, you can get inflation and deflation occurring at the same time, Robinson said. It is very difficult, really, to say what the cause is and whether anyone's theories are correct, whether even what I'm saying has any relevance to the outcome of what's going on. Well, a new study shows that the sounds were almost certainly caused by the rumblings of magma in a deep reservoir in the Indian Ocean, which was beginning to surge to the surface and which eventually erupted as a new underwater volcano off the coast of Mayette. Now, the findings trace the birth of the volcano for a full year and show how magna from a reservoir around 20 miles below the seafloor moved upward through the crust until it hit the seafloor and erupted into a new volcano. It took only a few weeks for the magma to propagate from the upper mantle to the seafloor, where a new submarine volcano was born, study lead researcher Simona Seska, a seismology seismologist at the GFZ, German Research Center for Geosciences in Potsdam, Germany, noted. The team used international data to show that the nine-mile-wide magma reservoir flowed upward in a diagonal fashion until it hit the surface. They were able to trace its movements upward by plotting the earthquakes that happened in the region. Seska noted that as it moved, it triggered energetic earthquakes along its path to the surface. He said, In fact, we reconstructed the upward migration of magma by following the upward migration of earthquakes. Now, the magma in the reservoir was able to then erupt from the seafloor and create the volcano. Now, as it did this, the island actually sank almost eight inches. It also caused a failure in the area above the drained reservoir called the overburden, which weakened and sagged and thus created small faults and fractures. When subsequent earthquakes hit, they triggered, quote, the residents of the deep reservoir and generated the peculiar, very long period signals, Seska said. Now, there is still some concern that future settling of the reservoir could cause more earthquakes. Hopefully, for the almost 300,000 residents of the island, uh, this will not happen. (laughs) Okay, so in other earthquake news, (laughs) uh, super deep diamonds might help us figure out more about Earth's deepest earthquakes. Now, earthquakes 
don't just happen on the surface of the Earth. There are earthquakes that happen in the mantle's transition zone, the area that divides the upper and lower mantle. Now, researchers have believed that liquid in the mantle plays a part in these deep earthquakes, but had previously not been able to actually know this for sure. And mostly that's because it's impossible to get anywhere near that deep in the earth. And so, um, you know, we sometimes think that we've dug pretty deep. Well, we've barely scratched the surface. Um, even those ultra deep mines that are like a couple of miles deep, like that's barely, barely putting an indentation into the surface of the earth. And these earthquakes are happening way, way, way further down towards the center of the earth. And so it's hard to research those sorts of things. And we actually use um, earthquake waves often because they do propagate through the center of the earth. We often use those to try and figure out about what's going on in these layers. And so they actually think they might have found another way to look at the ultra deep earth without actually having to be there. And so what that is, is evidence of fluid inside of what are called super deep diamonds. Now, most diamonds are formed from carbon at depths of 87 to 124 miles below the surface. But super deep diamonds are crystallized at depths up to 373 to 497 miles below the surface. Like I said, the deepest uh, holes that we've dug are a couple of miles uh, deep. And we're talking about 87 to 124 miles just for regular diamonds. Um, and so inside these diamonds are tiny flaws or inclusions, which are caused by these fluids. And so, therefore, this points to the fact that there is liquid flowing in the mantle layer where these deep diamonds were formed. Now, geochemist Stephen Shirley, a senior research scientist at the Carnegie Institution for Science in Washington, D.C., notes that studying this fluid is important because the location and movement of the fluid from where the diamonds formed may just be our ticket to understanding these deep earthquakes. Shirley and his colleagues presented their new research at the annual meeting of the American Geophysical Union this past month. They have modeled the movement of the fluid at depth by gathering data about the regions in which these super deep diamonds form. The researchers hope to be able to use the models to see how the movement of the fluids, diamond creation, and the physical rupture properties of the rocks in that region combine to cause these earthquakes. Now the next step is to connect the currents in the fluid to actual earthquakes. Now, these quakes are energetic, frequent, and, quote, a very interesting manifestation of plate tectonics, kind of as deep as we can see plate tectonics, Shirley said. And of course, as you know, um, I should hope, plate tectonics is actually, weirdly enough, still a relatively new science. There's still a lot we have to learn about just what happens, not only in the deep layers beneath the thin crust, but really at the crustal layer as well. Um... And, of course, that is the only part of the Earth that we have physical access to. So, hopefully, we will be able to 
figure out some more things. Okay, so I don't want to leave tonight without saying a bit about that new mystery disease that has been reported from China. The first thing to note is that no deaths have been reported. The second thing to note is that there is no evidence that the virus is communicable between people at this point. And the third thing to note is that no new cases have been reported since December 29th. So now that we're no longer panicking, we can talk about it. Uh, unfortunately, other than that, we don't know a whole lot at this point, says Jennifer Nuzo, an epidemiologist at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security in Baltimore. It seems to be a novel coronavirus that can produce viral pneumonia, which was severe in some cases. We don't know the ultimate outcome of ongoing cases or whether those individuals had pre-existing conditions, she um, explained. Now, infectious disease physician Amesh Adal. Adelaja, also at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, notes that so far, no healthcare workers or caregivers, uh, not at that fish market, have been reported ill, which suggests the virus does not transmit officially, efficiently between humans. And of course, this is a very good sign since health workers were the first to become infected during the SARS outbreak after the people who were initially infected. And so that means that right now there's not a whole lot to worry about for us here in the U.S. But of course, it's always worrying, especially when a new coronavirus pops up and starts making people sick. It's been 17 years since SARS, and we still don't have any cor coronavirus vaccine. We don't have any coronavirus antivirals, Adalja said. The only way we can take outbreaks like these off the table is to develop countermeasures against them. And so hopefully that's going to work at some point in the nearest future. Um, unfortunately, coronaviruses seem to be particularly good at resisting our uh, efforts to take them on. But luckily for now, we seem to have dodged a bullet. Um, but it is a good reminder that nature is not always on our side, not usually on our side, honestly. Um, and so, you know, there are definitely things that are out to get us. <laughs> okay, let's finish up tonight, though, with some fun research, um, at least in the, its conception. And so researchers took mice and had them watch uh, film noir. <laughs> uh, so they had them uh, watch, among other things, clips of Orson Welles' uh, 1958 classic, Touch of Evil. And it turned out that when they looked at how the vision cells of the mice reacted to the movie, only about 10% of the cells reacted in a way that was considered to be a standard reaction. It seems that early research on the visual cortex suggested that each cell focused on a single job, such as interpreting black and white contrast, for instance. But the new research published last month in Nature Neuroscience suggests that this is actually a uh, naive view of the actual process. So researchers, including Saskia DeVries, a neuroscientist at the Allen Institute for Brain Science in Seattle, used microscopy to study 59,610 brain cells in the visual cortex of living mice through small holes in their skulls. They then monitored how the cells either reacted to or ignored visual input, including clips of the movie and simpler image such, 
images such as a still of a butterfly or drifting black stripes. About 10% acted as expected based on previous research. The remaining neurons didn't look like what's going on in the textbook, DeVries said. It seems that many cells responded to multiple kinds of visual scenes, such as the drifting lines in movies, but not in a specific pattern. Some cells responded to all visual stimuli, but the weird thing is that about a third of all the cells tested responded to none of the visual stimuli. What then do these neurons do? The researchers asked in their paper. Now, obviously, more research will be needed to find out why such a large percentage of cells in the neural cortex or in the different, it's not actually the neural cortex. They, they looked at six different areas of um, the rodents' brains that are part of the visual cortex, sort of the visual matrix of being able to process vision. So um, sort of saying visual cortex sort of, uh, to me implies that there's just one little space, but they were looking at different spaces across the brain. Um, so I don't want to be confusing there. And so, yeah, it's very weird. Why, why don't they respond more? Uh, <laughs> why don't they actually respond to visual input when they're visual cells? So as always, more research is needed, which is very good because um, it's very sad when you actually are able to say like, well, we're pretty sure that this is what this is. I mean, obviously in science, that's never really true. Um, but it's always fascinating to be the person who gets to then do that for the research and figure out, for instance, what the heck do these cells do? All right. That is all the time I have for tonight. Uh, thank you for making it through this with me um i promise i will try and be back on uh <laughs> back to my old self next week seem to be very rusty after just two weeks it's very sad but um have a great week and i will definitely be back next week evidence-based radio is a member of the planetside podcast network to learn more go to planetsidepodcasts.com the theme song is widgen by bird boy Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.